did a search today for one of my old articles. October 11th, 1994, Nashville, Tennessean. Headline, ZZ Top's warm-up band, Steel Show. As Jackal played more and more, the crowd became less human and more animalistic. Fists flew in the air, lighters waved, heads shook. It all reached an overwhelming pinnacle when Jesse James Dupree, the lead singer, picked up his heralded chainsaw, played it as an instrument to the song Lumberjack, and then used it to demolish a stool and band member Jimmy Stiffy's guitar. Dupree then dove into the mosh pit. He got up, sprinted to the exit, stood on a concrete wall, wiped his sweat-covered brow, waved to the frenzied mass, and ran off smoking a joint. This job, journalism, has its flaws, but you'll always see shit that makes it worth doing. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Jeff Passan, the ESPN.com baseball writer and a man with a really sweet, trendy first name. This is episode number 211. Let's sing some Yang. All right. Well, Jeff, first of all, I just want to say it doesn't happen that often, but every now and then I do get an email thinking that I am you. And I just want to get your permission. I never asked your permission. My general response is, hey, go fuck yourself. I'm a better writer than you'll ever be. Suck my dick. And if you don't like it, go read someone else. Jeff. Is that okay? It sounds like exactly how I would not respond. It's it's how I would think. But the problem with working for like a giant corporation, multinational company uh, is that you cannot respond like that anymore. Like back in the Yahoo days, maybe so. Now it's just, uh, hey, thanks for reading. Your opinion is just as valid as anybody else's and your ability to express it is part of the American dream. This isn't where I thought I was going. I will say one thing I've learned over time is the best way to respond to a negative letter is, hey, you know what? I know we disagree, but it's really cool of you to reach out. And I really appreciate it because you win every single time. Not always, because there are still some people who will take kindness and and try and make that into a negative thing. Like you're just patronizing me now. There are some people you just can't win, but but there is nothing more satisfying than it. Cause I, my DMS on Twitter are open. I leave them open because I actually get tips there. And, and I had left, I had left them open for years of fruitless toiling and expectation among the hundreds or thousands of messages I get from people either trolling me, yelling at me, being weird, that sifting through that was going to finally lead to information one day. And it did. And I got a scoop because of it and it felt all good. But there's nothing more satisfying than when somebody slides into your DMs calling you a moron. And it's almost like you can talk them off the ledge and have like a reasonable conversation with them where in the end they say to you, you know, I think you're wrong, but I respect that you had this conversation with me. The funny thing is, so I don't view people in our profession as quote unquote celebrities. Like I feel like we are, I'm sure much like you, like I, I started doing this because I love writing and I love reporting and I was into sports and blah, 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 blah. But people who reach out to you don't always have that vantage point in a weird way. 
And you can actually win people over by saying, you know, whatever, engaging. And they'll be like, whoa, I didn't even think you'd write back. Really cool, man. Blah, 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 blah. Made my day. Thanks. And I'm like, really? That's all it took? That's it? I get that all the time. And and it was interesting because like before ESPN, I didn't, uh, I guess, show much personality on Twitter. Yeah, I remember you know, doing a, a quaz with you years ago. Mm-hmm. I think it was when, when the arm came out and there was a very, like there was a very complimentary thing that you said something to the effect of like, Jeff doesn't want to be on TV. He doesn't give a shit about that. It, which, uh, which, which was like a huge compliment uh-huh. from a writer to another writer. Like the idea of a brand that, that whole word itself in the bastardization of it, over time, just like I find it so obnoxious. And the, the idea that we're, we're some sort of um, curated product, that a human being is commodifying him or herself to appeal more to the masses and sell him or herself, that, like, that whole thing doesn't register with me. But one thing that I did realize is that like showing a little personality and being open is not something generally that people in the position that I have do. And so I wasn't actively trying to differentiate myself from others by doing that. But what I found is that just by even doing a little bit of that, the the public really relates to it and appreciates it and enjoys it. And, And the truth is, I'm not a particularly funny person, but Twitter for some reason thinks I am. And and I think part of it is because I do sort of let it eat a little bit. I, I don't I don't mind answering people who are say, you know, who just slide in and say, hey Jeff, and I'll just write back, I'll be like, what's up? It's it's a stupid thing to do, and, but it takes three seconds of my day. And, and the knowledge that maybe I am putting a smile on somebody else's face by doing that makes me feel like in, in these very microscopic ways, I'm making the world a better place. I talk to my wife about this sometimes. I would not consider someone I meet on Twitter to be a friend in any traditional sense. And then I find it weird, though, when mm-hmm. I'll have a dialogue with someone on Twitter and then I'll see them tweeting about was talking with my bud, Jeff Perlman. And I'm like, are we but like uh, that- there? You know, but there there are different gradients of of friendship these days now, right? I mean, think about no, seriously, think mm-hmm. about what what our kids have been through over the past year. Like the majority of their socializing, the majority of all of our socializing has been electronic. Like the lack of in-person stuff, I think, is, has lowered the bar, or at least maybe created a new one where online friendships are a very real thing. Think about how many people uh, have gotten married after meeting online and, you know, they didn't meet in person. Uh, that, that's just a modern thing, I think. The, the reality is we're just old. But you know that already because our name is Jeff. Like, do you see any young Jeffs now? Jeff is just, it's, it's like, it's like Harold 
or like Walter. It's just a dead name. I know. We're, we're holding on for dear life. My kids make fun of me about this. They're, every year they'll be like, yeah, no Jeff's in class. No Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like I like that Jeff McNeil's still around, like holding down the fort in baseball for us. It's sad that my head just went to who are the NFL players named Jeff? And I thought of Jeff George, who has not played in the NFL in 25 years. I was just going to say, and I thought of Jeff Chidea, who is a reporter. I was doing a deep dive last night into your work. I just kept coming back to this story you wrote not that long ago. Uh, San Francisco Giants outfielder Drew Robinson's remarkable second act. I mean, it's a great freaking story. And everything I like about journalism and everything I feel like in a way, you know, since kind of the, I hate to say the death, but since kind of the death of traditional Sports Illustrated and the death of ESPN, the magazine, I feel like stories like this actually jump out more and more because they're deep and they're detailed and they're the exact kind of story you would open up or I would open up SI as a kid and just dive into. For people who don't know, Drew Robinson, he's now a uh, an outfielder of the Giants system and uh, he tried killing himself. He tried shooting himself in the, in the head and he kind of, you could say failed or succeeded. He failed in killing himself, but succeeded in living. And your lead to this story was on April 16th, 2020, Drew Robinson woke up, spread peanut butter on a cinnamon raisin bagel, pulsed a green smoothie, sat at his kitchen table, and finished writing a note that would explain to his family and friends why he had decided to end his life. He spent the past month alone in his house, confined by the pandemic and quarantined in his own mind. He hated his life. He hated that no one knew how much he hated his life. Everything I like is in that lead. And what I mean is, Little details, cinnamon raisin bagel, not just a bagel, a green smoothie, not just a smoothie, spread the peanut butter, you know, not just put peanut butter. I mean, first of all, how do you even get to write this story? How do you approach this guy about writing this story? It's such a personal freaking thing to write. And you just did it so well and got so much. I was extremely lucky because this is the kind of story that you dream about. But more than that, this is the, the sort of subject that you don't imagine exists. Somebody who wants, actively wants to tell his story, feel, feels like that's part of his reason for being here still, and is so incredibly open about it that if ever I was at a point where I needed a detail, I could just text him. You know, I would text him lists of questions, like three or four at a time, and he would just answer back almost immediately. So whenever, I mean, this was, this is the longest story I've ever written, you know, by quite a big margin. I think I filed it, first time I filed it was at 14,000. Uh, I think it ended up running at like 11.5 or so, which, which was, a, and it was a better version at 11.5 than it was at 14. Um I stumbled upon this story. I'm not going to call it accidentally. You know, we can sit here and reminisce, Jeff, about the heyday of Sports Illustrated uh, and, and of long form sports writing as carrying products as opposed to being ancillary. And, and I will do that forever because that's why I got into the business and I used to sort of sneer and look down at the, the grinders, the news people, the sort of stuff that I'm doing now. I got this story because I do news. 
that's the fallacy. I think that the, the uh, high and mighty and elitist in journalism need to get past the, this idea that great long form journalism and great daily transactional journalism are mutually exclusive. They're not, they're symbiotic. The reason that I got a phone call from telling me about Drew Robinson was because it was a person who I have known for seven, eight years now and with whom I've developed a really good relationship doing news type stuff. And he knew about this and told me about it and said, I think, you know, I think you and Drew would connect really well. And I think you're the right person to tell this story. And this was back in May. This was like a month after it happened. And I was very nervous after that phone call because I didn't know a whole lot about suicide and about reporting on suicide and about whether talking with this person who had just attempted was going to put him potentially in a bad place again. And, you know, in my head, all I'm thinking is Dr. V, Dr. V, Dr. V. We do not want another situation like that. You know what I'm talking about, right? Do no harm is, is our, our, like deep down, our number one priority is journalists. Do good, do no harm. I had heard about Drew's story and my instinct said, okay, go look up like the police report. But that, that was like the news part kicking in where the human story I, I soon realized was going to be a much, much, much larger part of things and more important and more impactful. And so I said to, to my guy, let's pump the brakes on this for a little bit. Let's give him some time and see where he is in his healing process and get back to me when he thinks he's ready. And in August, I heard uh, from my contact again, and he said he's ready to talk. And they set up a FaceTime between Drew and I, and we talked for a half hour that first day. I think Drew wanted to see how I reacted to looking at him missing his eye. Didn't wear an eye patch, just straight up like, this is what I look like right now. This is who I am. This is where I am. Are you interested? And it started uh, that day. And, uh, you know, a, a few months later, we, we ended up with a story that I know I'm going to be. Um, I, I know it's going to be a huge part of the rest of my life. Like uh, I'm going to be connected with Drew forever because of this. And I'm really appreciative of that and, and of the chance to get to tell something that I think has and will continue to change people's lives. Were all the interviews you did via Zoom or video? No. So I got connected with Martin Kotabashian, who... Uh, has like shelves full of Emmys. And, you know, I had I had had uh, one opportunity before that to do sort of like a long form or longish form TV piece, which was the cover story with Fernando Tatis Jr. But that was only like six or seven minutes. Um, 
you know, something like this, which we thought maybe it'll be like a, a half hour ended up being, you know, well over that. I had never done anything like that. And so I, I didn't, you know, I didn't know Martin had never worked with him. Wright Thompson had though. And it's, it's like, Martin's the best. And so if, if you had like, if, if you get Wright's backing, then, then, you know, he's good. And he, he has played, you know, I, I used to, I used to look at TV reporters walking around with producers in clubhouses and stuff like that. And I would think, God, those poor bastards don't have the ability to work without somebody like being over their shoulder. Part of my whole thing in clubhouse is getting to know players, getting to know people has always been like creating that individual rapport and having someone else around doing that. I always assumed would be, you know, an ankle weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, this, this story is not nearly as good without Martin around because he just has this brilliant way of connecting with people. And he vibed with Drew immediately. And it almost took some of the pressure off of me um, with, with a story like this, you know, you have to be in constant touch with the subject and uh, there are ups and downs where you need to, to reassure, you know, the, there were delays in this story getting printed um, just because it was uh, okay. When are we going to be able to have the documentary ready? Uh, all, all sorts of behind the scenes stuff that was annoying Drew. Like he wanted it to be out there. And so Martin's presence really, gave me the peace of mind to go and do what I needed to do on my end. And, and, you know, I had never met him when we went out to Las Vegas in early September. Um, But they, they did. I I think that our bosses understood that while there are some interviews you can do over zoom, there are some you probably shouldn't. And this was in the definitely shouldn't because it was, it was the most intense, draining interview I've ever done. It was, what, what's the longest you've sat down with a subject, uh, regardless of topic, and talked with him or her? Maybe six hours, five hours. We were, we were there for seven hours talking to a guy about how he tried to kill himself. It's hard. Like, it was... At the end of the day, I was just I went back to the hotel and I just wanted to cry because it was just a like, oh, just, you know, it, it's it's a lot to process. And to see him there and talking about his family and, um, you know, crying on and off like it, it showed. I think that, you know, I think that one of the strengths that Drew has is his willingness to be open and his ability to talk about his emotions. And uh, that that's, I think that is reflected in the story. Wait. So you, when you're interviewing him, when you're out there in Vegas, you're interviewing him for dual purposes. You're interviewing him for TV and for print at the same time. Yes. Does it change the sort of nature of how you're interviewing someone? You know, normally, whatever you sit down, you put some recording device down, you hope they forget the recording device is there in many ways. And it becomes the whole goal, right, is to make it as conversational as possible. Now you're interviewing a guy. There's a guy behind you. There's a guy to the left. There's a TV camera, blah, blah, blah. Is it even possible to maintain that same level of intimacy? I think so. Yeah. 
It's different in that some of the, I'm not even going to call them techniques necessarily, but some of the things that I would do if it's just a, hey, here's my recorder, here's me and you sitting across the table from each other bullshitting, I I won't do when the TV's there um, or when the TV cameras are there. Um, or what do you mean? Uh, I think I'm probably a little less uh, likely to go on tangents or to say some um, just like a stupid one-liner or... Uh, you know, you're never in a situation where you say, Hey, let me turn the recorder off and tell you this story. Right. And it, it's, it's those things that quite often create the rapport, right? It's like, I, I think I instinctively figured this out and only later began to understand the psychology behind it. But when you do something like that in an interview, it's like you're telling somebody, hey, I'm going to let you in on a secret. And it's the kind of thing that makes the person you're talking to subconsciously feel special. Mm-hmm. Hey, he wants to tell me a story where he's going to turn the recorder off. Like I, I, I did that not, not like understanding what that does, but I really do think there's some power to that because – People are going to tell you things only if they trust you and they're going to trust you even more. If you're saying to them, I trust you to tell you this thing. So there, there are none of those things in TV interviews that I found so far. I mean, maybe, maybe you can say like cut the camera or stop rolling or something like that, but that's not something I've like, I'm too green in that area to do that. I, I, I still feel like I, I haven't earned that. You know, I still feel like a rookie when I'm doing TV stuff and, and it's all really new and fresh and interesting and fun because I kind of suck at it. And <laughs> I'm just trying to, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how do I not suck? Like I can sit down, like I, I wrote, you know, like I said, first draft was 14,000 words. I wrote that in like a day and change. Um, I can sit down like the, the greatest gift. The luckiest thing I have as a journalist is I can sit and write five to 8,000 really good words in a first draft in less than 24 hours. And, and, turn it in and feel like the editor's probably not going to have to do too much to it with TV. I have no confidence because I'll look at myself on sports center sometimes. And for some reason, when I'm talking and, and trying to gather the thoughts in my head, I forget to blink. I'm sitting there looking like a fucking robot on television, like an Android who's been programmed not to blink, but to relay baseball thoughts. And so there are a bunch of things that I do that I'm very self-conscious about with TV uh, that it's just not there with the writing. When I see you on ESPN, I always think, why doesn't this fucker blink? Why won't this guy blink? Just (laughs) try it. It's not a big deal. 
I never even never entered my head before, but I uh, no, of course not. It doesn't enter anyone else's head. But don't we just look and pick out all of the little things about ourselves that that only we notice and that only we care about? Yeah. Before we continue with two writers singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my wife, Catherine. So our daughter, Casey, is graduating from high school this week, and I definitely think we need to get her a gift. We already ordered her a cake. I know, but we can do better. I was thinking about a nice bracelet engrave her graduation year. Better, damn it. I know we can do better. I know where you're going with this, and we're not getting another freaking USFL jersey from 503-sports.com. I know it's the king of throwback merch. I know you think she loves Herschel Bryant of the Philadelphia Buccaneers. You totally mangled that. It's a Herschel Walker and the Philadelphia Stars. Whatever. Not the point. She's an 18-year-old woman. Enough with that 503 Sports USFL gear. I mean, they sell Canadian League, too. I want a divorce. When I'm interested in something, it's just under my head. All right, so I'm working on a Bo Jackson book. And there's a 30 for 30 on Bo Jackson that everyone loves. Mm-hmm. And when I watch a 30 for 30, I almost get feelings of hostility and jealousy where I'm like, God, I don't, I, I gotta be better in this. Like I, and I've always been that way. Whenever I see a TV report, I always think to myself, it's about, and it's about a subject I'm writing about. I got to outdo that. So you're here and you're doing a TV report on the subject. You're actually writing a lengthy, lengthy piece about, do you worry that you need to outdo the TV piece in your writing? No, one thing I found is that they can be extremely complimentary. The the truth is about writing, there are just some things that we're never going to do as well as television. We can write about people crying. When you see somebody crying, it is an emotional wallop unmatched to what you could ever do with the written word. And so I I think you have to understand that uh, whereas there are some things that we're always going to be able to do better writing um, when you're doing both of them, you can tell the same story in slightly different ways. And that's almost freeing. It's almost like you get to tell two different stories or you get to play around. I mean, think about, think about when you're structuring a story. Uh, Sometimes you just know your lead and, and you hope to God on every story that you know what your lead is, because how much, uh, you know, my process for a long time has been, if I can't write the lead, I just sit there and, and wallow in sadness. And uh, I, I have to, I have to get the lead done before I can go on to the rest of it. Um, It's not for any good reason. There's nothing logical about it, but it's almost like it sets a good pace for me. Like if I start and can plow through the lead, like I, the, the paragraph that you read earlier, I sat down and after, so my process is I will just, you know, organize my outline and you do an outline. um, Oh yes. Oh, absolutely. Every single time. And it's not, you know, it's not like a, it's not like, Wright has his binders. Uh, Greg Bishop is my best friend back from college and he has his own style. Mine is mostly, I will go through transcripts and take quotes and put them in places where I think they're going to end up. Uh, I have, 
you know, in my notes, I have sections, uh, facts, uh, headers and kickers, you know, uh, anecdotes, and I'll just sort of scramble them throughout this Word document that's broken into different sections. And each section, usually at the top, uh, I'll put what I want the section to be. What What's the theme? What's the action that's going on? How does it advance the story? How does it keep the narrative propulsion? Um, all of those things. And typically when I'm done with that, I feel pretty confident about writing. And, and I sat down with the outline done and the outline takes longer than the writing, by the way, like the outline is, Oh yeah. When I, when I'm writing, like I go and I, I will not, I will not spend too much time like trying to craft perfect sentences. Um, I, this is going to sound arrogant. I just think they're going to, they're going to show up. And so I don't need to think, I don't need to think too much about them. I, I, to me, my greatest weakness has always been organizing a story and, and telling it um, with the book, for example, like the 125,000 words I filed uh, with the arm um, chapter one got moved to chapter eight, chapter four got moved to chapter one. Really? Like, yeah. oh yeah. Oh so yeah. Weird. I've never had that happen in anything ever. Wow. That's interesting. I know. Cause you're good at organizing things like that's, that's, that's clearly, yeah. yeah, that's definitely my way. Like, uh, I I'm, I'm so name dropping here, but I just, I I've been very lucky to be surrounded in my life with talented people. Eli Saslow, when I was sports editor at the Daily Orange at Syracuse, walked into the office as a freshman. So I've I've seen him turn from just this sloppy disaster of a child into like the best at what we do. And I have always been extraordinarily jealous of his ability to put things in the right place. Like everything in his story, you know, he is he is so not flashy. He's not the person who's going to like turn a great phrase on you. It's just like the most honest, straightforward, detail oriented, simple journalism that works because he always tells the story the right way. And that that has been my my bugaboo forever. Am I telling the story the right way? Well, so. I think as you do this longer and longer, you realize that turning the quick phrase and using these words that maybe when we're in college, we read someone use them and we're like, holy shit, that word. <laughs> the, the best storytellers are actually very straightforward storytellers. I mean, clarity, being spare, like those are all things that, I mean, I turned 40 last year. I, I Welcome to the joint. Like, Welcome to the club. It's awesome. Here. Yeah, it's fantastic, right? Um, just every morning it's more and more painful. Um, I, I don't think it took until I was 40 to recognize these things, but pretty close. Yeah. Like it, it, it takes, it takes a long time and you can, you can preach it all you want to younger writers. Um, and very, very few are going to get it because I think, Part of it is also life experience. 
right? I think the I think the older you get, the more you realize like simplicity in life is is a virtue, and and it's something that you should be striving for, and that honestly translates to your work too. Yeah. There's something I've talked about on this podcast a lot. I don't think I've ever been able to explain it well. Maybe you can, because you do it well. So you wrote in this, there's one sentence here you wrote in your in your Robinson piece where you wrote, he knows that sometimes life is like a vice, unrelenting, cranking tighter and tighter. And it's that, like I advise a college newspaper and they're just, these kids, they, they just don't know how to do this no matter how much I talk to them about it, which is you're allowed to be the narrator of a story and kind of move the story along with observational without you saying, I think he's like a vice or, you know, like just kind of moving it along and pushing it along, having a voice and doing it. But the reader not thinking, oh, this is now here's Jeff and he's writing this and he's telling me blah, blah, blah. The best way that's ever been described to me was by Patrick Ruby and he called it billboarding. And it's the idea that you are such a, an expert on the subject that you're talking about, because you have spent so much time reporting on it, you have invested so much time getting to know the people involved in the story that you have earned the right to peacock. And what I mean by that is go around and and show your shit. Like you're not wasting words in this story because if you were wasting words, then you would be doing wrong by the story. And you inherently are not going to do wrong by the story because you care too much about it, because you're too invested in it, because it's too important to you, because all that time you spent would be wasted otherwise. And we are self-interested creatures in the end. And a lot of that comes down to trusting yourself, right? And I can trust myself because I've been doing this for 20 years and you can trust yourself because you've been doing this for 25 years. And we've earned the ability to look at what we do and say, we're going to do this well, but it takes time. Like when Patrick first Uh, you know, when he first suggested I do that, it felt weird and, and kind of unearned. And so to, to say that to younger writers, I'm, I'm not trying to limit what a younger writer is capable of doing. What I will say is that because a younger writer doesn't have the amount of reps that we do, the margin for error in doing something like that is, is, you know, it's not great. (laughs) Like there's a there's a much greater ability to fuck something like that up because you haven't fucked it up before. You and I, we've done plenty of fucking up and doing so at a young age is is vital because, number one, uh, it humbles you. Number two, it teaches you what not to do when you get older and and, you know, you're doing these bigger, better stories and, and you're doing the kind of work that you've been working toward forever. Um, I, I think it gets back earlier or, or the gets back to what I was saying earlier, earn the right to do that by knowing the subject so well that you can by, you know, that, that sentence that I wrote right there that you said, I felt like I was able to write that because it was surrounded by facts 
and surrounded by quotes that support it and and that make it not out of place. This is not this is not me walking around and writing something trying to show off. This is like a transition, right? It's a little fancy transition, but it's it's your classic transition, just not something between quotes that's trying to get you from one place to another. It, it's that there's there are rivers throughout stories and your job is to create a bridge that takes you from one side to the other. I do think the one thing like I think about myself as a young writer and I was as a shitty reporter. And if you're a shitty reporter, can't be authoritative because yeah. you don't know the subject matter. You know, that's the thing that I left college not understanding. All of us wanted to be Gary Smith. Yeah. I mean, there's a there's a story I I've referenced this story in other podcasts before. And, and I almost feel like it's an Easter egg for, for people to try and go find and embarrass me with. And the kids at Syracuse these days, like at the Daily Orange, know what it is. There's a story I wrote senior year, and it's the fucking worst thing you're ever going to read. It's Why? so, it's so bad. It's so bad. And, and it was because I wanted to be like, Gary Smith and was trying to write like him. And that's one of those things where I, I look back and I say it's so bad now, but it was important because I, I realized, well, I didn't realize at the time I am not Gary Smith. None of us is. Um, but I left college thinking stories like that were what I wanted to do when I just didn't realize because Maybe because I wasn't taught, maybe because I wasn't listening, maybe because I, I didn't want to hear it. Reporting is everything. It is everything that we do. That's what I try and tell students. Um, reporting and relationships, like th those are the, the bedrock of all good journalism. You will never write a good story, a good nonfiction narrative, if you are not a good reporter. It's impossible. It's impossible to do. And so I think you can learn to really write over time, but I think reporting is the sort of thing you either have it or you don't. And it's more a matter of being willing to tap into it than anything. This might sound kind of snobby. When I go to a bookstore and I'm looking at books, and I, I like to roam biography sections and just get ideas and I'll always go to the acknowledgement section and see if they thank how many people they interviewed. And if someone wrote a biography, a full biography. Well, you're, you're the, I mean, you are the, the king of interviewing but I'm people not saying, for books. Yeah. But I don't even mean that. I just mean like if someone interviewed 20 people, they're like, I want to, I interviewed 20 people. I'm like, that's not like, that's not enough. Like, that's <laughs> not enough. Like, but I really mean that. Like, I think like, there's always someone. There's always some like I want to no, know. Here's I, the thing. But you you set you set an unfair standard for the rest of us. I remember when I no, I remember when I was going through the arm like I had a, I had my source list, uh, just the people who I've interviewed and the people who I wanted to interview and stuff like that. And I would say to myself, not as many as Perlman. <laughs> but it's an obsession for me. But I just think like I know you're the same way here. Like if I can tell you that the car was a Buick and not just a car, I want to tell you that it was a Buick. Oh, it's it's everything. The details, details are the difference between I, I mean, 
So getting back to to the lead of the Drew Robinson story, it, it was one of those nights where I just sent him a bunch of questions late at night and said, what'd you have for breakfast that day? Cinnamon raisin bagel with peanut butter, green smoothie. You want to set the tone early on too. Uh, I think most readers are probably not attuned to understanding that if you see a story with that kind of detail in the first paragraph, that you're going to get something good here. Right. Um, but I think over time, they probably start to recognize it. One of the, one of the best compliments I got on this story uh, was from a, a bunch of people who said the detail, the detail of it was staggering. That is there a better compliment as a reporter that you can get than the detail was unbelievable. No, because nine out of 10 stories like this start with Drew Robinson knew he wanted to die. He sat in his house thinking to himself whether he should live or not. You know, everything was dark, (laughs) blah, 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 blah. And I'm not saying anything is technically wrong with that. But when you can say he woke up and he spread peanut butter on a cinnamon raisin bagel, you're taking it to a much different and more precise and more intimate level. Here's the thing, man. I don't know what story for you is like this. But I knew from the first time I talked to him that this was different and that this was a story that I could not fuck up. Like I, it, it would I couldn't because I knew that he was trusting me with it and I never would have forgiven myself if I had half asked it or if I hadn't done the work. But more than that, it's like a once in a lifetime story. At least I think it is. I don't know. Am I, am I, oh, am I, I exaggerating there? I don't think so. So wait, I have a question. When you, um, the story comes out and you know he's about to read it, are you kind of shitting your pants waiting for the reaction from him? Nah, nah. I knew it was, I knew it was going to be like, I knew the reaction from them was going to be good. And, and not just him, but his family, because his family was integral to making this happen. And in his family, I don't think understood what Drew was asking of them at the beginning. You know, this, I I think this story was actually very therapeutic for his family too, because it forced them to talk and to be uncomfortable. And that's a lot of what Drew preaches, you know, discomfort is okay. It's part of life. It's part of who we are. It brings things out in us that we may not have known existed. And uh, and because of that, because of their openness and their willingness to talk, I think they, they understood that there were going to be hard things to read, but they, they'd done a lot of this already, right? They had, you know, they, they had spent the previous six months talking about these things and, and seeing it out there finally uh, was cathartic. It was almost the start of something new for Drew. Um, this, you know, the, the story itself, uh, when I was trying to figure out how to tell it, um, I, I knew there was just, you know, it, it was going to be divided into two. It was going to be before the shot and after the shot. And how am I going to tell those things? But there's almost a... You know, there's almost now in the the current part of his life, a third act, which is 
after the public learned because his life has changed a lot since the story came out. Would you say he would say he is a better person for what he has gone through in these experiences? Um, yeah. And, and I think that's, that was the trickiest part of telling this story. It was making sure not to say to the public that's reading this, if you put a gun to your temple and pull the trigger, then that will solve a lot of your problems because Drew's issues are still there. They're there every day. Like he's fighting it right now. You know, he's at AAA and he, uh, you know, he had his Roy Hobbs moment where he hit a home run and he's had some success, but there's also been failure. And, and it's been really interesting to see, To you know, to me, this is, this is sort of the next chapter in Drew's story. It's the fact that for the last, you know, nine or 10 months, his life was ensconced in a bubble. He was surrounded by friends and family who were all extremely cognizant of what he had been through, were very wary of placing him in situations that could be triggering, that could be worrisome. Uh, he, he was living a life that others, in which others were helping him avoid some of the things that had taken him to a really dark place in the past. Sports does not offer the soft landing. No pitcher wants to give up a hit to a guy with one eye. And so they're going to go after him. They're going to try and strike him out. And when he strikes out, th there's nobody there to, to pat him on the back and say, hey, champ, it's okay. You know, he, he feels like it's not. And so falling back into those same patterns that he's had in the past, it's really difficult for him not to do that. And that is, you know, as much as I think he has found religion in openness, in mental health, in making himself a better person, and in trying to make the world a better place by telling his story and letting others who feel the same way that he has understand that life is worth living. It's hard. And, and, and life is hard for, for those of us who are lucky enough to not have uh, any mental health issues or, or whose brain chemistry allows him or her to live life on a daily basis, um, feeling good. Uh, and, and it's hard for, for people who aren't given that gift and, and who do struggle. And uh, I, I think the, the reason this story, Jeff, was as universal as it was and appealed to as many people as it did is because the difficulty of life is, is something that all of us go through and all of us recognize. And in the way that Drew was able to, to tell his story even though he attempted suicide, which is something that a lot more people think about than I think uh, most recognize. But the fact that he did that and he, he went to that length and still managed to be relatable, that's a really, really hard thing to pull off. And I think one of the, one of the great uh, gifts that he has to take into the future. I just want to say, I think one of the great poisons that we do is 
and maybe it's not as common as it once was, but I still think it's out there is you're a good looking guy playing professional baseball. What do you have to be depressed about? I hate that so yeah. much. It's there still in the culture. I know. Like it's, it's not there like it used to be though. And that was my, you know what? That was my biggest. I had two fears going into this story. The first was that we were not going to handle the suicide, uh, just the discussion of suicide. Well, and it was not an unfounded fear because, you know, early on in the process, um, I reached out to the doctor who wrote the reporter's guidelines on writing and reporting about suicide. And I, I, I asked him first, do you think it's OK for us to talk to Drew? Is there any danger in doing that right now? And, you know, he gave me a couple of questions to ask. And if the answers are this or this, then maybe you want to pump the brakes a little bit. I sent him the first draft of the story and he sent it back to us. And I think the first line of his email was, this is dangerous. And it's like, uh, you know, you don't want to hear that. On the other hand, there were other people in the, the suicide research community who looked at the story and read it and were like, this is brilliant because it's real and it's raw and Sometimes you just need details to tell a story. And my editor, Rachel Ulrich, she's really, really, really good. Like, like, really, 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 really good. And and was a thoughtful editor on this because, you know, she, she put it well. She's like, if a detail doesn't correspond to the narrative of the story, we need to get rid of it because otherwise it's going to seem superfluous and or excessive. And she was right. Like uh, there were so many, like to me, riveting details that ended up, you know, left out of this story because we needed to be cognizant of, of the community and understand that there are people out there who potentially could read this. And again, we do no harm. Like we we didn't we didn't potentially want Drew's story to get lost under a deluge of criticism about our handling of a particular subject. That would have been it just would have been wrong. So we were very careful about that. Rachel was careful. Um, We had groups of we have like an internal group at ESPN that goes over sensitive stories and, you know, ways the usage of uh, of every word, really. And so they looked at that and they looked at the movie as well. Ivan Maisel, uh, I think he probably worked at him. I did. Or worked with him at SI, uh, who, who lost his son to suicide and who's doing a book on it right now. Uh, Ivan was kind enough to, to read over beforehand. So we, we really wanted to be judicious about how we went about that. The second thing that I was worried about was the same thing you just said, that there were going to be people online who said, you're better looking than I am, even though you're missing an eye, you play baseball, what's wrong with you? And and there was a little bit of that, but the response like that day, man, was, you know what it's like on pub day, like all the emotions 
that you ever think can exist inside of you turn into this furious tornado in your stomach and you don't know what the public is going to say. You don't know what they're going to think. You don't know how social media is going to respond. You don't know. You're so proud of your work that, that you've cut veins open and poured it into and you just, you never know. And, and that is a, it's like a dream where you're perpetually stuck floating and you just want to know if there's going to be a pillow at the bottom or a, a jagged rock that's going to impale you. And, and this thing sort of took off a little bit slower than I thought. Wasn't getting quite the engagement on Twitter that I had hoped, but uh, it was it was a slow build. And by the end of the day, seeing the amount of people already that it had reached and looking through my open DMs and seeing what people were saying uh, about Drew, it was it was just a really heartening thing to know when you do work that you're proud of, but that also has an impact on people's lives beyond, oh my God, Paston told me that Garrett Cole's going to the Yankees. I was just going to say, final question. Um, you do this story, you put your heart into the story. The story is everything to you. You bust your ass on it. Details, details, details. Uh, hey, uh, Jeff, uh, we think Syndergaard has a, you know, has a ligament strain in his left knee. <laughs> Can you go? Is it hard to jump off of a story like this and care about no, 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 not at all. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm too much of a pragmatist to look at the, the, the thing that us capital J journalists would snub our noses at and, and think that it's lesser. They're just two different things. And I'm really fortunate that I get to do both. I think the fact that I do the the transactional stuff buys me the capital to go out and do the passion project stuff. Right. There there are not a lot of people left at ESPN or in the industry altogether who have the latitude to to write five or 6,000 words at their behest. If I go to my editors and say, I got this story and I want to do it, they're usually really on board with it and supportive. And there just are not a lot of people who do the new stuff, but also prioritize the the longer form stuff. But I feel like I would lose myself without it. It's why I got into the business, part of who I am. And so if... You know, if that means that I have to work a little harder, that's what Die Mountain Dew is for. Well said. I just want to say, in closing, of all the Jeffs in this world who drink too much soda, uh, <laughs> still use Word documents to write their stories. I caught that. And attended yeah. a school where Joe Biden went to. He's a Syracuse and Delaware alum. You're the second best out there. You're very high on the list. Uh, uh, no, you know what? I, I will. I, I of, of all the Jeff P's, I, I will take that. <laughs> uh, I appreciate you doing this so much. It's a great, great story. You deserve all the accolades for it. And uh, yeah, man, thanks so much for doing this. Oh, thank you for having me. Appreciate all the kind words and uh, have a good one. So
I want to thank today's guest, Jeff Passan, for joining me on Two Writers Slingin' Yang. You can follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Passan and read his excellent work at ESPN.com. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Writers Slingin' Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and giving the show a nice review. I make no money for doing this. It's all about word of mouth. Music is by the gifted MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing. <laughs>